Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. Today we are going to go to Cape Cod. So Cape Cod is a peninsula in Massachusetts. It's a very popular destination from late spring to early fall. A lot of people like it for its laid back atmosphere, beautiful beaches, and seaside living charm. But this crime takes place in the winter when the town is empty of people looking for a vacation because the winter is so cold and harsh here. To put it into perspective, according to the realtor website, jackconway.com, the population more than doubles in the spring and summer, going from 229,000 people to well over 500,000. That's crazy. So it's winter, January 6, 2002, when Tim Arnold goes to return his neighbor and ex-girlfriend, Krista Worthington, her flashlight. They both live in a very nice rural area of Cape Cod, about 100 yards from each other, but it's not a straight 100-yard shot. Krista's driveway was a long private one that takes a bit of a winding curve to get to her house, which is also surrounded by a lot of trees, shrubbery, and foliage, offering a lot of privacy. So it's not like walking 100 yards in a straight line. Tim ends up watching the Patriots game that Sunday afternoon with his father, when his dad suggested that they return the flashlight after the game. But when Tim gets to Krista's home, he wasn't able to return that flashlight because Krista was dead. Before we jump in, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Haley Lira. Please leave me a five-star review and share my podcast with a friend. I am just a regular girl recording a podcast in her dining room with secondhand pawn shop equipment doing my thing. So sharing goes a really long way for me. For photos, videos, and anything else pertaining to these cases, go check out Storytime Slayer on Facebook or story underscore time underscore slayer on Instagram. Again, this is a true crime podcast, so we are going to cover some heinous topics. Listener discretion is advised. Let's jump in. So that afternoon after the Patriots game, Tim's father drove him to Krista's house to return the flashlight because it was really cold. She, again, lived on a kind of windy road. And Tim said when he got to Krista's, he saw two unopened newspapers on her property, which was really unusual for her. He knocked a couple times. Nobody answered. So he decided to look through the window and actually saw Krista lying motionless on the kitchen floor. I think he said the back door was already opened, and so that's how he got in. He said his initial thought was she had gone in through the back door and maybe fell down or something. So he goes inside through the back door. She's lying on her back, and she's naked from the waist down with her legs slightly spread apart, and there's blood all over. He said Ava, Chris's two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, was next to her mother trying to actually nurse on her. The child appeared to have been there alone with Krista lying on the ground, deceased a long time. Tim felt for a pulse and could immediately feel Krista was cold to the touch and was already deceased. So he grabs Ava, who went with him willingly because she spent a lot of time with Tim and there was like a comfortable familiarity. So Tim takes baby Ava to his dad's car. And when he does, he tells his dad Krista was, quote, D-E-A-D end quote. He said he spelt it because he didn't want Ava to understand. Next, Tim calls 911. EMT arrive and one of them tries talking to Ava. They were asking her just basic questions like, when did you last eat? Um, When were you changed? Things kind of like that to get a timeline. Ava was so little though that she really didn't respond to them. She just sat there silently. 
Then Ava's stepmom, Susan, and father, Tony, arrived to get Ava and find out what happened to Krista. But when they arrived, Susan said something along the lines of, quote, don't listen to anything that girl says she's a liar, end quote. This is according to the EMT. Susan maintains that she did not say that verbatim, but that she did tell EMTs that Ava could be a fibber sometimes. So that's kind of weird. I mean, given the circumstances, it's strange that's the first thing that the stepmom would walk in and say. As for the crime scene, Chris's house looked like it had been completely ransacked, but it actually hadn't been. See, Krista was just a very, very messy woman. Overflowing dishes, trash, and doom piles everywhere. Um, For those of you that don't know, a doom pile is just a random pile of random shit. At first glance, it looked like the house had actually maybe been robbed, but that theory was quickly ruled out when people who knew her well explained that that's just how her house was. Krista's car was still in the driveway. Her back door had been violently kicked in with the deadbolt still locked. So... It was apparently kicked in with great force. Her cell phone was on the table with only the number nine punched in. It's theorized she was probably trying to call 911 and was stopped by whoever did this to her. As for Krista herself, she'd been stabbed in her chest so deeply that the murder weapon went into the floor below her. But the murder weapon was no longer in her chest nor anywhere at the crime scene. It is believed to have been a knife out of Krista's own set of kitchen knives. Krista had multiple defensive wounds to show that she did fight for her life. Not only had Krista's back door been kicked in with great force and left open, the driveway gravel was disturbed greatly, indicating that there had been some sort of fight in the driveway that led up to her house. And one of the most heartbreaking observations at the crime scene is there were small bloody footprints and handprints all over because Ava had been in the home with her dead mother anywhere from 24 to 36 hours. They could literally see where Ava tried to give her mom some of her sippy cup. Ava tried to feed her mom food, and she even got a wet washcloth and tried to clean the blood off of her mom. So she's got little remnants of her handprints in the bathroom and where she tried to rinse the washcloth and come wipe her mom, which is just so heartbreaking. Unfortunately, this case gets off to a really bad start because the crime scene was very poorly contained. I don't think it was intentional. I think the investigators were just really naive to handling murder scenes because Cape Cod doesn't experience hardly any murders. So they didn't know the proper protocol for securing a crime scene. For one, they almost immediately put a blanket from inside Krista's house over her body out of respect before they even properly examined her and secured the crime scene which can cause cross-contamination. That's a no-no. Then they just started walking around and touching everything in her house without gloves. I mean, they literally walked around her whole house like a bunch of idiots. That's another big no-no. When an examination was done on Krista, they found semen in her and saliva on her body that they hoped could give them some insight into who could have killed her. I think it's important to mention that the semen they found had already lost its tails, meaning it could have been there anywhere from three to five days prior to this incident. That doesn't mean it was for sure there three to five days prior. It just means there's a window of time that it could have been there. When police spoke with neighbors, one neighbor, Gerald Smith, said during his Saturday morning walk, he saw a black car racing away from Krista's down her driveway. They were driving like a bat out of hell and didn't even stop to turn out of her driveway onto the main road. They literally just like whipped the corner and sped off. 
Gerald said it was a tan white guy, but that's all he could make out. At the time, he was like, whoa, what the fuck? And then just continued his walk. So who is Krista? I'm going to tell you all about Krista, her life, and the different people who were immediately considered suspects. Krista Worthington was a very successful 45-year-old fashion writer. She was from an affluent family as well. Her father was a Harvard Law School graduate, and they had a very comfy, privileged life. She grew up in a suburb south of Boston. After high school, Krista went to Vassar, a private college in New York. It's after college that she became a fashion writer and editor and was featured and worked in many well-known high-profile fashion magazines. An old friend and co-worker said their life was very much like the movie The Devil Wears Prada. Krista is described as wistful, mysterious, elegant, refined, and rather an old soul. But she was also very messy when it came to her housekeeping skills and her personal life. She got herself into odd entanglements. I will explain them shortly. It was in the mid to late 90s when Krista, who'd primarily lived mostly in New York, started shopping for a baby daddy. She was 40 and wanted to be a mother, but didn't necessarily long for like a husband or father figure. She was determined and pretty comfortable with being a single mom. She wrote many articles about it and was even featured on talk shows. Now, keep in mind, this is in the 90s, so that's pretty out there stuff. A successful woman wanting to be a single mom in her 40s. At this time, Krista was seeing a magician named Thomas. Once Thomas realized that Krista was trying to get pregnant, he decided to end the relationship. So they break up, and I don't know the exact dates, but a very short time later, Krista finds out very devastating news. She was going into premenopause, and the chance of her getting pregnant were very unlikely. This was understandably devastating. So in her 40s, not being able to get pregnant, that's when she decided, you know what, I'm going to go stay in Cape Cod for a while. The Worthington family had properties in Cape Cod going back several generations. So Krista went to go stay in a bungalow that was originally owned by her grandmother and eventually was passed down to her. Perfect place to escape and get some space, especially for a writer. And this is where things heat up. After spending some time in Cape Cod, Krista met Tony Jacket. I think she first asked him to help her with some things around the bungalow. And then they started having little get-togethers. And next thing you know, they're in a romantic entanglement, sleeping with each other. I call it an entanglement because Tony was married to a woman named Susan. In fact, they'd been married over 20 years and had six kids together. Oh, the audacity, Tony. However, the thing between Krista and Tony was not just a sex thing. Krista fell madly in love with him. But this is a really small town, so a lot of people start to notice their relationship and gossip about the affair. Around the same time the town was chit-chatting about the affair, Krista, who is now 42, gets pregnant. Oh my gosh, she was elated. She was overjoyed. She thought this day would never come for her. But when Krista told Tony they decided to end the relationship, Krista had agreed and said she would keep the affair a secret and not tell anybody Tony was the father of her baby. And she didn't need him to be involved with the child because it'd been her plan for years to be a single mom anyway. But as nice as that sounds, as time passed, Krista began to change her mind and became very frustrated with Tony's absent in their daughter's life. Regardless of her frustrations, for a long time, Krista did keep the secret and didn't tell anybody after Ava was born. Krista was a wonderful mom. She loved being a mom and she took really great care of Ava. When Ava was about 
Sometime between one year and 18 months old, Krista decided, you know what? I do want Tony to step up and be in dad. So she tells Tony she wants him to come clean to his wife, Susan. And not only did she want him to come clean to his wife, but she also wanted him to step up. She wanted him to pay child support and put Ava on his health insurance. Krista wanted a baby daddy. Now, I don't know if Tony just flat out refused at first or if he kept dragging ass saying, okay, I'll tell her, I'll do it, I'll do it. But whatever the situation was, Krista grew impatient and decided to just tell Tony's wife, Susan, herself by writing a very blunt letter about their affair. And this letter was not just matter-of-fact or sugar-coated. It was harsh. It was written as if Krista wanted to intentionally hurt Susan. But Susan took it like a champ. I mean, straight on the chin. She was completely blindsided and hurt at the news, she said. But she put her feelings aside and she decided, you know what? We need to just welcome Krista and Ava into the family. Because... Since Ava was Tony's child, Susan wanted the girl to have a place at their house too and meet all of her siblings and like have a nice family dynamic for the child. So Tony and Susan decide to stay together. They work things out and they decide to start doing Sunday dinners as a family and involve Krista and Ava. Wow, Susan is a gem for that. I mean, I would welcome Ava into my life too probably, but I would definitely be collecting on my husband's life insurance policy a lot sooner than he expected if I was Susan. Uh Uh-uh. He would not be having dinner with us. So January 4th is the last time Krista was positively seen alive. Her and Ava were spotted on video surveillance at their local supermarket. And that's going to be the last sighting of Krista until she was found deceased Sunday, January 6th. Ava was about two and a half. So It'd been about a year, maybe a year and a half since the cheating and baby drama came out and Susan, Tony, and Krista dealt with that. Just to kind of put the timeline in perspective of when all this went down in relation to Krista's death. Now let's talk suspects. Of course, the first main suspect was Tim Arnold. He was the person who found Krista. He lived next door to her and they'd had a romantic past that didn't end on the best of terms. See, Krista broke things off with Tim, who still had a burning flame for her. After the discovery of Krista, Tim was asked to go to the station for an official interview, to which he readily agreed. Tim and Krista had a rocky relationship. It was on and off for a couple of years. At one point, they lived together, and Ava nicknamed Tim, Tim Mom. Tim was a very good match for Krista intellectually. He was artistic, well-spoken. They had a lot in common. They had a very strong connection over literature. But as time went on, Krista seemed to get extremely irritated with Tim to the point of being a bit nitpicky about everything he said and did. It's almost like she grew to not be able to stand him anymore. The impression I got is when the relationship came to an end, Tim was really bummed out. He seemed to have lingering feelings for Krista that she no longer shared. Tim told the police one day he was out for a run and knocked on her door. So this is after they broke up. She didn't answer his knock, so he peeped in her windows, which understandably irritated the shit out of her, and she went off on him. So yeah, I get the impression Tim had a really hard time letting go of Krista, and she had to set him straight. After her death, there were some voicemails on her machine from Tim, and I'm going to read them to you. He said, quote, well, I think you've made it very clear where you stand on the issue of friendship, so at this point, don't expect me to be around, end quote. 
Another one said, quote, Hi, Krista. Just to clarify, if you wanted to call for uh, to try to arrange for me to see Ava, that would be fine. I'll uh, see what I can do, but I don't really think we should see each other, even briefly. Bye. End quote. I just want to let every Tim out there know when someone makes it clear they don't want to talk to you or see you, you don't have to call them to tell them that they shouldn't talk or see you. (laughs) They don't want to. So yeah, Tim definitely looks like a jilted lover. Everyone thought he did it. The whole town, even Tim's own father asked him if he killed Krista, but he insisted that he did not. And other than thinking he might have, there's really no evidence so far that Tim committed this crime. I very much to this day think Tim could have done this. I mean, his voicemails just really strike me as odd. And if they were on such bad terms, why didn't he just put the flashlight on her porch and leave a message? It sounds to me Krista had been crystal clear when she said fuck off. And I found the fact that his dad drove him there to be really suspicious. But we're going to circle back to that later and clear some of that up. Of course, the next suspect is going to be Tony and Susan. Police found a copy of the note Krista had written to Susan, and if that wasn't motive, I don't know shit. However, Susan ends up taking a polygraph, and she passed, and there was nothing tying either her or Tony to the murder. Plus, Susan and Tony had six kids and a lot to lose. Plus, Tony was really known in Cape Cod. It seems like it would have been really risky for him and Susan to do something like this. And he would still be financially responsible for Ava. And everybody already knows that he had an affair and stuff. I mean, it's not like they're just going to forget. So I don't know. I mean, Krista also wouldn't be the first ex-mistress to be murdered, right? Next, police look into Krista's ex-boyfriend, Thomas. That was the magician in New York. Um, I think it's kind of funny. He said in an interview with 2020, they were like, The police told him, you know, we think you did it. And he was like, why? And they said, quote, because it's something a magician could do, end quote. (laughs) And Thomas was like, quote, "Uh, just because you can't solve it doesn't mean it was magic, end quote. He was very easily ruled out as well. He hadn't been anywhere near Cape Cod when this crime was committed. So police keep digging further and further into Krista's life, and they actually take a look at her father and her father's girlfriend as potential suspects. Krista's dad was 71, and his girlfriend was a 29-year-old former, wink, wink, heroin addict and prostitute. Together, the couple was blowing through the family inheritance, which greatly affected Krista and Ava. The reason they were suspects wasn't just because of their lifestyle of, like, her being a heroin addict and prostitute and just like kind of questionable, but it was because Krista was actually legally putting up a fight to end their frivolous spending of the family inheritance. And if they got rid of Krista, no one would be there to stop them from doing whatever they wanted with the money. They were both brought into the police station for polygraphs and they failed. (laughs) But despite them failing, they ultimately couldn't be connected to the murder either. And we're going to circle back to them also later. There's not a lot of murders in Cape Cod, so this case was becoming extremely high pressure for the police department to solve, but they literally had nothing. There was a handful of plausible suspects, but nothing that could tie anybody to the murder, and nobody on that list matched the DNA that had been found on and inside of Krista. The town of Cape Cod was on edge at the thought of a murderer being loose in town. January 9th, a $25,000 reward for information was posted by Krista's friends and family for any information leading to an arrest. 
With no one matching the DNA at the crime scene, investigators got creative and did what's called a DNA drag net. So this is the first time I'd ever actually heard of this. What they did was they asked 800 men in the surrounding area to submit a voluntary DNA sample. They said it wasn't just about getting a DNA hit, although that would have been awesome, right? They also wanted to see who was willing to comply and who wasn't. Honestly, I just don't know if I would do a voluntary DNA sample like that if I was a complete stranger and knew I had nothing to do with the case, nor would I really probably want my like husband or family to. I don't know why. I'm, I'm a pretty private person, though. Despite the multiple lists of suspects, despite the DNA dragnet, three years went by until they got an answer. Three years. And you're not going to believe where they got the answer from. The police finally found a match to the DNA at Krista's crime scene after those three years. And it wasn't from the DNA dragnet. It was a sample that was already in the system. So I don't know why it took three years to find that sample. If it was already in the system, you'd think they wouldn't have had to do the dragnet. But I really don't know how that stuff works 100%. The DNA belonged to 33-year-old Christopher McCohen, Krista's trash guy. You're probably thinking what I was thinking. Had police seriously not spoken to her trash guy or any strangers who would frequent her house? They actually had. They'd spoken to him two times previously. So the first time was three months after Krista's death, and the second time was two years after her death. They didn't question him as a strong suspect, though. They questioned him just out of routine because she was on his trash route. Chris maintained during both his questionings that he didn't know Krista personally. He'd never been inside her house. He only knew her from collecting trash. In those first interviews, Chris did not act guilty at all. It was actually kind of shocking to police that he was the DNA match. Christopher is described by his family as a quiet guy that didn't have a violent bone in his body and was not capable of murder. He was a ladies man, a quote, player is what his dad described him as. However, his criminal record spoke a different story. Chris had been arrested for grand theft and burglary, which he served time in prison for. But what stood out more was the five restraining orders against him by women claiming he was abusive. So police arrest and charge Chris McGowan with the rape and murder of Krista Worthington, April of 2005. The public was shocked because this was the first time rape had ever been mentioned to them you know, police always hold back something, so the rape is what they held back. The autopsy report didn't have any notations of injuries consistent with sexual assault, like tearing or bruising to her vaginal region. But, I mean, Krista had defensive wounds and was found dead with her pants off. So I think rape is a logical conclusion and possibility. So when police bring Chris in and speak to him on this third time following the DNA match, his entire story was different. Like, completely different. He said he didn't tell police the truth the first time because he knew Krista wouldn't want anyone to know that she had sex with the trash guy. So here's where things get messy. Police say Chris rejected being videotaped or recorded during this third interrogation, which lasted six whole hours. Chris maintains that the supposed confession that I'm going to outline in a minute is not true. He says that he never said he didn't want the interview recorded, and he goes on to say that police tricked him into giving that confession, which was relatively easy to do because Chris said during his interview he was under the influence of pills, cocaine, and marijuana. 
that's a hard pill for me to swallow, guys. Did they flat out lie about the entire interview? Or did they trick him and feed him that confession? I mean, he's not really being clear. It sounds like he's just throwing anything out there and seeing what sticks. It is important to mention, though, that Chris had a relatively low IQ. According to the book Reasonable Doubt by Peter Manso, it was an IQ of 76, which is borderline of that with someone that has possible mental impairment. And I want to mention one more detail. In a town with less than 4% of its population being black, according to census.gov, Chris was a big black dude. So once the news got word of his arrest, he was pegged not as just the trash guy who murdered Krista, but the big black trash man who murdered Krista. Like that's literally, people would always point out the fact that he was black. Keep all of that in mind. And here's what I know about the controversial confession. According to police, Chris admitted that he'd had sex with Krista and that's why his DNA was found on her. He claimed that he had a few women he hooked up with on his trash route because he was a ladies man. The sex was always consensual and the sex he had with Krista happened Thursday before the murder ever even occurred. He said Krista asked him to come inside to look at her Christmas tree and see if maybe he could throw it away for her. One thing led to another and they had sex on the living room floor. By the way, Side note, Chris does not throw her tree away from her that day. In fact, you can see the tree in her living room in the crime scene photos. It was still up and fully decorated, but okay. So Chris says that he has sex with her Thursday on her living room floor and then he leaves. Everything was fine. Nothing happened. Then the next night, Friday night, Chris and his friend Jeremy Frazier went to a club called The Juice Bar. Jeremy was only 21. He was very young, naive party boy. According to Chris, after the juice bar, Chris asked Jeremy to drive him over to Krista's house so he could see if she wanted to have sex with him again. And Jeremy readily agreed. When they arrived, Chris said Krista was initially startled because she obviously wasn't expecting him. Chris told her that he was tipsy and quote, I just came to get some blank, end quote. You guys fill in the blank, okay? According to him, she was down to clown and let him in. While they were having sex, though, Jeremy went through Krista's house and took a bunch of her personal belongings. When they were done, Krista looked around and noticed and confronted both the men. So the two men just decided that they were going to just leave with the things Jeremy stole and get the hell out of there. But Krista followed them outside, demanding that she get her stuff back. This ultimately pissed Jeremy off, and he just snapped, and he started beating Krista. Chris, unsure what to do in that situation, decided he would join in beating Krista up. Then Jeremy hit Krista so hard during this beating, she fell to the ground, and they drug her by her armpits back inside her house. Once back inside the house, Jeremy took a knife from her butcher block and stabbed Krista through the chest. So yeah. Chris basically points the finger at this guy named Jeremy Frazier. All Chris would take ownership for was having consensual sex with Krista Thursday and I guess Friday night too before this wild incident happened. Of course, police have to find Jeremy. Now, when police questioned Jeremy, he was like, yeah, him, Chris, and their friend Sean went to the juice bar Friday night. But Jeremy said he couldn't remember what he did Friday night after the juice bar. Just total loss of memory. The buddy Sean also corroborated that those three men, him, Jeremy, and Chris, were at the juice bar Friday night 
And they couldn't deny being at the juice bar because there was literal video footage that people had taken where you can see them at the juice bar. But Sean, too, had a sudden lapse in memory following the juice bar. However, police follow up with both Jeremy and Sean and their memory had a miraculous recovery. They suddenly remembered that they went back to Sean's dad's house, just Jeremy and Sean, and that's where they remained the rest of the night. They do not know what Chris did that night, nor were they with him. Later, when they were asked, why did you lie and say you couldn't remember anything after the juice bar, Sean actually told police, well, that's what my dad told us to say. What a dummy. And what's really strange to me is police just take Jeremy and Sean at their word. Chris is the only one charged with rape and murder, and his trial begins November of 2006. Chris's defense adamantly maintained that the confession wasn't, quote, worth the paper it was written on, end quote. And they basically pointed the finger at Jeremy, maintaining the only reason Chris's DNA was found on Krista was because they had consensual sex on Thursday when she asked him about throwing away her Christmas tree. Other than DNA, the prosecution had nothing to pin this murder on Chris. Chris's defense also points out some really interesting things about Jeremy Frazier, like how quickly the police take him at his word and they basically don't investigate him at all. In fact, they take a look at Jeremy Frazier's cell phone log that was obtained from Friday, the night Krista likely died, and Jeremy had spoken to a Massachusetts state trooper on his cell phone. Jeremy actually had multiple outgoing calls to a pager number. When asked about the call to the state trooper, Jeremy just flat out denied it. And he also claimed that the calls to his own pager number were because he couldn't find it that night. And police just take him at his word. Like they never cross-reference his pager number to confirm whose it is. They just say, oh, okay, you called your pager over and over to find it. No big deal. Oh, you didn't call a state trooper? Okay, cool. So the defense was insinuating that Jeremy was a police informant and that's why he was not being properly investigated. So he could potentially be an alternative suspect for this murder, leaving some reasonable doubt for the defense's client, Chris. And of course, the defense strongly maintained that the entire confession was false and coerced by investigators. But here's where things are like a total area of gray. If the police coerced or made up Chris's confession, why would they even implicate or mention Jeremy at all if they didn't want to investigate Jeremy? The door swings both ways, y'all. If police and prosecutors believe enough of Chris's confession and say they did not coerce the confession, why did they not press Jeremy harder? Jeremy and Sean are ultimately made witnesses for the prosecution, where they each give each other an alibi, maintaining they'd gone to the juice bar, then separated from Chris, went to a house party, and then back to Sean's dad's house for the rest of Friday night. Chris maintained nothing from his confession was true except for the fact that he had sex with Krista consensually on Thursday. He said that he did not go to her house on Friday like his confession says. He went home after the juice bar Friday night. A big narrative Chris's defense pushed was that Chris was being blamed because he was a big, large, intimidating black trash man in a town with virtually no black people. The prosecution blew this off and said that the defense was pulling the race card. Not my words. I'm just telling you guys what literally happened and was said in court. Now, remember that neighbor, Gerald, who said he saw a black car speeding away from Krista's Saturday morning? He actually testified at trial and was adamant about what he saw and that it was a white guy driving away from Krista's, like a bat running from Ozzy Osbourne Saturday morning 
period, dot. He's like, I did not mistake what I saw. Seriously, y'all listen to me. The jury deliberated for eight days before ultimately finding Chris guilty of first degree in extreme atrocity and cruelty and felony murder. He was sentenced to three life terms without the possibility of parole. Chris just wept and shook his head when he was sentenced. In a statement to the court, he said, quote, I feel very sorry for the Worthington family, her daughter and her. I never meant for this to ever take place, but all this time I've been innocent, end quote. After sentencing, the only black juror, which was a woman, said that she'd been made to change her verdict during deliberation by racist jurors. She claimed jurors were racist and just stuck on how big, black, and scary Chris was. However, other jurors maintained the decision was in no way racially motivated. A judge reviewed the situation and also found there to be no racism involved in the jury pool or the decision that they came to. Chris is fighting for a new trial. His attorney filed a motion to get more info into Jeremy's old cell phone records and locations on the night of the murder, but I don't think it's available anymore. As for Chris, he maintains the same story. The confession was coerced, but he did ultimately have sex with Krista Thursday before her murder. I think this is a case of sloppy police work, specifically regarding how they handled the crime scene. They didn't properly secure the scene. They touched everything. And they dropped the ball with Chris's interview situation. I myself don't know what to believe. So part of me thought Tim, the ex-boyfriend slash neighbor, for sure had done it because who has their dad drive them 100 yards to return a flashlight? But then I found out Tim used to be a very successful illustrator who suffers from cavernous malformations. So Googling taught me that cavernous malformations is a cluster of thinned out blood vessels along the brain and skull surrounding the nerves and sometimes even your spinal cord. So Tim couldn't drive. And over time, the diagnosis affected his visibility and mobility. I mean, I don't know, though. In 2005, he was living in a dorm in Provincetown with restaurant workers. He was really hard to track down because he had no cell phone, no bike or car and was just like seen walking around town, going to libraries and stuff. So, I mean, I guess that kind of explains why Tim's dad drove him. But I know it's still weird to return a flashlight on a Sunday to someone who doesn't even like you. Keep the damn flashlight. As for Chris's father and his girlfriend, the girlfriend said she met the father when she was a prostitute in 1998. He was not her boyfriend anymore, but he did give her an allowance and paid for her apartment and utilities. Hmm. As for Krista's father, he said he was home alone in his apartment on the night Krista was murdered. The girlfriend said that she was at her apartment, the one that Krista's dad pays for, alone that night also. This was later found out to be a lie. The girlfriend had some heroin junkie guy over who'd been with her all weekend at her apartment. She offered to give her DNA fingerprints and whatever else she needed to be cleared, including a polygraph. As for the failed polygraph, it was determined that it was because she was dope sick, and that's what caused her to fail the polygraph. Since Chris's trial, Jeremy Frazier was charged with rape of a child by force, but the charges were ultimately dismissed in 2018 because the case was all dependent on the testimony of a child, and they thought it could be too traumatic for them due to their young age. Wow. Okay, so here's my final thoughts. I think it's probable that Chris and Jeremy Frazier did something to Krista. I don't think that they have enough evidence to justify three life sentences, though. There's just a lot of loose ends. 
I would love to hear your thoughts. So definitely let me know what you think. As for daughter Ava, Krista had in her will that her best friend was to be granted custody of Ava and Krista's inheritance if Krista were to pass away. Tony did go to court to fight for custody of Ava, but ultimately lost. He says he and Susan did see Ava throughout her childhood, though. Thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast, and I really hope justice was served. I just think there's too many loose ends and, you know, openings for reasonable doubt to justify three life sentences. All right. Again, I'd love to hear what you think. Talk to you next week. Bye.